So uh, hopefully you're already there. Um, I'm not, so let me get there. Uh, Matthew chapter 19. Let me just read for you this passage. Um, and setting the stage, this is coming out of Jesus' teaching on the a section of teaching on forgiveness and on conflict resolution. Interesting, right? As we go into a little passage on uh, marriage and divorce. Um, so he's he's coming out of that passage, but even more specifically, this is on Jesus' journey toward Jerusalem that would ultimately end in his crucifixion. So this is uh, as he's constantly having these run-ins with the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law, and this will be one of those. And so listen in that context. I'm going to start in Matthew 19, verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we jump into such a tricky passage, would you give us your grace to navigate it? Would you help us to hear not just our preconceived ideas, but help us to hear your word as the original hearers heard it in both its grace and its call to radical obedience? And so, God, I pray that you would guide my words, that they would come from you alone by your spirit. God, would you... Uh, allow the words that come from my flesh to fall to the ground and be forgotten. But may the words that come from your spirit remain. May they penetrate our hearts. And God, may we be different people because we've heard them. And so speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Empower us to both speak, hear, and understand that we would be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you four points to kind of organize this under. Hopefully it'll help you structure your thoughts as we work through this. We're going to start with an old debate, an old debate, which leads to a bigger question. That bigger question then leads to a difficult answer and an even more difficult response. So four different things, an old debate, a bigger question, a difficult answer, and an even more difficult response. Hopefully you have a copy of the Bible because we're going to be jumping around. I will try to read for you as you go, but let me encourage you to follow along as we, as we go. 
So the big challenge with this passage from the outset is that Jesus is speaking in a way that seems very binary, very black and white. Um, this, this is obedience. Everything else is disobedience, right? That's the challenge to this passage. It's a challenge in Matthew. It's especially a challenge in Mark and Luke who record an even more abridged interaction with Jesus. And Jesus seems to make a statement that marriage is, is up for life except in the cases of sexual immorality where we are allowed to pursue divorce, but not encouraged to pursue divorce. So there's a whole bunch of questions that come to mind. Jesus makes that statement, seems to make that statement. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, adds abandonment to the conversation as it relates to divorce and remarriage. And as far as we can tell, Jesus and Paul leave out the whole area of abuse as a a cause which has led many pastors and uh, individual people to advise people to stay in abusive marriages because they're not listed by Jesus, not listed by Paul. That's just a few of the problems. That's not even talking about those four references to eunuchs at the back end, which we'll get to in just a little bit. Um, So um, this is tricky. So so what do we do with it? Well, well, let's start here. First of all, it's important to see that at the beginning, verse 3, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him. So the Pharisees are not coming to Jesus because they're interested in what he has to say about marriage and divorce. They're not coming to Jesus to get information. They're certainly not coming to Jesus to conform their lives to his teaching. They're trying to test him. And they're testing him in a very specific way. So this is not an honest seeking of information. This is a, a very specific test. And that's why the question sounds strange. So Matthew records it in a way that is supposed to tip us off to something that should reference an Old Testament passage to us. So this is in verse four, I'm sorry, in the end of verse three, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That phrase, any cause, would have made all of the original hearers immediately jump back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. So I know most of you have Deuteronomy 24 memorized, but in case you don't, flip back to Deuteronomy 24 and let me read for you this verse and that was the center of all kinds of Jewish controversy and had been for centuries a rabbinical debate that had bounced back and forth between the two primary schools of rabbis. So let me first read for you. This is Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her... If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts, her, it puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has become defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. Did you follow that? That is a long, run-on sentence. Everybody get all that? This is, um, this is uh, your English teacher would have been really, really upset with you. But that's in Hebrew, so it's okay. So, so here's what's going on. This sentence, this long, complicated sentence, has become the subject of rabbinical debate for centuries leading up to Jesus. And what we miss is this was an incredibly progressive law that 
is why it became such an object of debate. Because this law gave unprecedented rights to women within the society. Now, that may not sound right to you because as you listen to this through 21st century years, you're saying, what in the world's going on? But see, in ancient Israel, before this law, in the ancient Middle East, a, a man would divorce his wife because of whatever reason he chose, and once she was divorced, she was basically put out and she had no way to gain income that was appropriate, and so she often found inappropriate ways to gain income. Um, and one of those inappropriate ways in the eyes of the law was to get married to someone else so someone else could provide for her. But the former husband, before this law, could go back and say, hey, that's my wife. And so then he would put both of them in this position where she couldn't be provided for by him because he was unwilling to provide, but she couldn't be provided for, for by anyone else because he wouldn't, no other man would marry her because she wouldn't become his wife because the former husband could come back. Do you follow all that? And so what, when this law came to be, what, what God was saying to Israel was, women are not your property and women have rights that you have to follow. Now, it still sounds very backwards to us because we don't live in a patriarchal society. This is a culturally far removed. But understand, this was an incredibly progressive law. So as the rabbis started to interpret it, and as you can understand, as I read it, it's tough to interpret. There's so many layers to it. The rabbis had this argument around a specific phrase in verse 1. So it says, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. That phrase, some indecency, was the object of debate. So there were two primary schools, the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. There's a test later. Just kidding. You don't have to remember that. One is conservative and one is liberal. So the liberal school of Hillel, the liberal school of Hillel said that some indecency, that phrase, means literally anything. So he emphasized the word some, and he said in, all, in his teachings, it could be any reason. So any cause for divorce was fine. Literally, he wrote in his teachings, if a husband comes home and his dinner has been overly cooked, that's a reason for divorce, right? Anybody been loving that? Like, wow, none of us would be married anymore, right? And, and so this is literally any cause. In the commentary on Hillel's uh, writings, it said things like, if a husband saw a wife that was more fairer than his current wife, then he could just go like, are you kidding me? Like it was for any cause, literally any cause. Shammai, on the conservative side, said instead of focusing on some, he focused on indecency, and Shammai said, no, 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 no. The law does not mean any cause. The law means sexual immorality. The indecency clause is a sexual immorality clause. So there's this debate going on. Now enter Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees want to test Jesus, and he's just come into the region where Herod has been king. Now, if you remember Herod, if we go back just a couple chapters, John the Baptist is beheaded by Herod. Now, if you remember that story, we don't have time to go all the way back, but if you remember that story, John the Baptist gets in trouble because Herod decides to divorce his wife and marry his sister-in-law. That's weird, but that's what happened. 
And so John the Baptist says that's not moral. He gets thrown into jail and ultimately gets beheaded. Now the Pharisees in the region of Herod come to Jesus and say, is it lawful for a husband to divorce his wife for any reason? Do you see how tricky this conversation is? So he's entering into a rabbinical debate and he's doing it in a region that would have been tricky for him to answer honestly anyway. So what happens? Well, Jesus says this. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. So Jesus takes this old debate. Matthew references it in a way that we would understand. So he puts that phrase, any cause, in there so that we would understand that's what's going on. And then Jesus says, I'm not going to answer that question, as he so often did. I'm going to go to the bigger picture. And so he actually jumps back to Genesis chapter 1 and references the creation story and the first marriage. So now turn in your Bibles all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. If you're already in Deuteronomy, you're most of the way there. Um, I want to read for you in Genesis chapter 1 the specific two verses that Jesus is citing. First one is this. Uh, Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now turn to Genesis chapter 2. And let me read for you verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is coming all the way back to the question of purpose rather than the question of marriage. So he, he's taking them back to why men and women, why humanity was created in the first place. Uh, There's a guy named Leslie Newbegin. You may have heard of him. He was a missionary in India, but he was uh, an an Englishman. After he retired as a missionary, came back to England and began to write on the way that pluralism was affecting society. And one of the primary things that he said, he has an excellent book called Foolishness to the Greeks. If you want a deep read, wrestling with culture, it's an excellent prophetic book right now. Newbegin said this, purpose must be at the heart of our understanding of truth because in every way, the intent of the creator matters. So uh, let me give you an example. As I'm speaking to you, we can describe what's happening in two different ways. One of them philosophical, one of them biological. So biologically right now, I am speaking with air going through my vocal cords that are creating vibrations. I'm projecting those out towards you. They're being received into your ears and going through the ear canal and ultimately ending up in the cerebral cortex. I know if you're a doctor, I skipped a bunch of stuff. Don't worry about it. Um, And in the cerebral cortex, there's stuff happening where literally your brain is changing according to the things that you're hearing. So biologically, that's what's happening. Does that actually unpack anything? No, that's just, that's just describing the biological function, right? But philosophically, I'm coming to teach you 
the words of Jesus so that your life and mine would be arranged around the teachings of Jesus. Those are two dramatically different things. The difference is purpose. The difference is intent. So this microphone was created by someone to do something very specific. It is supposed to take sound waves, move it to an amplifier, and send it through so you can hear it online and you can hear it out there. That's what a microphone is supposed to do, and it's judged in its effectiveness by that, right? Because the intent is that it's supposed to amplify sound or take it to an amplifier that will amplify sound. It doesn't make sense to judge it based on how it would look sitting on my living room table as a piece of art, right? Because that's not what it's designed. It doesn't matter how nice it looks. It doesn't make sense to judge it based on if I throw it at my cat, how straight it falls before it hits it, right? Like, I'd like to do that, but it's not what it's made for, right? The intent of this microphone is not to hit my cat, and I'm not taking it home. I'll throw something else at the cat later. Um, and just kidding. I would. Never mind. Um, so uh, that, that's not the intent, right? So you judge the intent. Ba- you, you judge the effectiveness based on the purpose. So Jesus is going all the way back. And he's saying, what's the purpose of humanity? And Genesis 1 says, the purpose of humanity is to be an image of God to the world so that God would be glorified. And it's fascinating because Genesis 1 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what Genesis 1 says is not just that humanity in general is created to image God, but that male and female in co-equal but distinct ways reflect the image of the creator and therefore glorify God. Do you follow that? So he's saying very specifically, you have to judge based on the intent of the creator, the purpose of the creator. The creator says that male and female are in co-equal ways to reflect the image and glory of God. And then he says, the one flesh union described at the end of Genesis chapter 2 is intended to be a permanent representation of the glory of God. So he's going to get there in just a minute. He's not saying that marriage is the only representation of the image and glory of God. And he's not even saying that marriage is the only male-female representation of the glory of God. The argument can very easily be made, and Jesus will in just a minute, that community, uh, the, the, the mixed-gender, multi-generational community, equally but differently represents the image and the glory of God. But... But when it comes to marriage, Jesus is being asked about marriage, and he says, you have to go back to the purpose. The purpose is that men and women together are to reflect the image and glory of God, and that when they're united together in a one flesh union, that one flesh union is intended to glorify God. Everybody with me? Following all of that? We good so far? Yeah, it's going to get trickier, so if you're not with me yet, it's going to get worse. So, um, okay, so Jesus makes that statement. And then he's inferring to them, what do Shammai and Hillel, what do these two schools of thought have to say about the purpose of man? Well, Hillel, by his interpretation of that any cause idea, is saying man isn't intended to glorify God and image God, but rather marriage is intended for the pleasure and the convenience of men. 
Why? Because women don't get to divorce for any cause. Only men get to divorce for any cause. You burned my dinner. I saw a cuter girl than you, whatever the case may be. And so from Hillel's teaching, he's saying, you've completely moved away from the intent of the creator. The intent of the creator is that your one flesh union would eternally represent the covenant love of God through imaging the creator and glorifying God. But Hillel says, no, no, no. It's about the, the, the pleasure and convenience of men. And so Jesus is pushing back on that and saying you can't interpret Deuteronomy 24 apart from the original intent of the creator. Why is that important for us to get? Because we still wrestle with this today. What's the purpose of man? Well, there's a bunch of different narratives, right? There's the image of God to glorify God. There's also, in our context, a very concise statement within the Declaration of Independence that gets quoted all the time, right? That uh, we are to, uh, that we have the inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? Everybody heard those before? I don't think that's new to anybody. Imagine what a society would look like if the primary goal of man is that we get to pursue our own life however we choose, that we get to uh, hold freedom as the highest value. I get to do what I want to do when I want to do it and pursue happiness according to my definition of what happiness is. What would society look like? I would argue a lot like ours, right? Right? That's the challenge. And so, again, if you go all the way back to purpose, you begin to make different decisions regarding even life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Jesus is saying, if you are trying to understand why you do what you do, why you should do what you do, you have to go all the way back to the original intent of the creator. He's pushing us not just just look at marriage, but to look at the big picture, to look at why we live the way that we live. All right, so let's keep going back to uh, Matthew chapter 19. So he makes this statement that um, two are no longer, no longer two, but one flesh, what therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. Here comes the trap. So now the Pharisees say, why then... Did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? So they're back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Why did Moses say that they should do this? So Jesus has two answers to it. The the first one is this. One, they were not commanded. They were allowed, but not commanded. So there was an allowance given, and that specific allowance was given because of hardness of heart. That's going to be a really important phrase that we're going to come back to a bunch. Uh, Because of hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to uh, offer a certificate of divorce. And so Jesus then says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. All right. So what Jesus is saying is this. Sexual immorality, we hear that and hear sexual immorality is the primary reason or the only reason that we should get a divorce. Remember, Jesus is speaking into a specific context and he's answering a question. Maybe the easiest way to understand it is that 2,000 years from now, you were recording a conversation, Ron and I are having a conversation, and Ron asks me, do you think people should be able to drink when they're 18 or when they're 21? And I would say, I think 21's good. And if you recorded that and 2,000 years later, somebody read that dialogue, they would say, those guys are idiots. Why? Because you drink as soon as you're born. Like, it's the first function that you have is you, you drink, right? 
But there's a larger cultural issue that Ron and I assume that we understand as we're speaking into it, and nobody else outside of our culture would understand it. Because outside of our culture, the words that we used, are you, should you be able to drink when you're 18 or when you're 21, don't make any sense outside of that cultural debate. That's exactly what happened with Jesus. Should a man be able to divorce his wife for any cause? He says only sexual immorality. It sounds like he's saying the only reason you could ever get a divorce is because of sexual immorality. But actually, what Jesus is saying is, in this specific debate, Deuteronomy 24.1 means specifically sexual morality. There were four reasons, four um, uh, obligations of marriage for ancient Israelites. One was found in Deuteronomy 24, uh, marital fidelity. The other three were found in Exodus chapter 21. So turn to Exodus chapter 21. This is interesting because it's actually this passage of the laws, laws about slaves, but it's where we find the three other obligations of marriage that actually made their way into Israelite vows, Hebrew marriage vows, and they were the four primary things that marriages were held to in Jesus' day. So um, this is what it says in verse 10. If he, this is talking about a slave master who has married one of his slaves, if he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these things, these, these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. So what the law says is there are three rights that are given in a marriage covenant. Uh, we could summarize them as physical, um, uh, uh, physical sustenance or physical care and relational sustenance or relational care. That word is literally translated conjugal rights, and because this is a multi-generational service, you're going to have to look that up on your own. Um, but this is, uh, that's what they're saying. He's saying that there's, there's a relationship connection that should be happening and a physical uh, provision that should be happening. And not only is that true for slaves, but that's true for all. So that's translated to everybody. What's Jesus saying about this? Well, he was not, wasn't asked about this. He, he, as far as we know, was never asked to comment on Exodus 21. He was asked to comment on Deuteronomy 24. Why is that important? Because he never said one way or the other what he thinks about these other three responsibilities of a marriage. He only commented on sexual fidelity because that was the only question he was asked. We can assume from the way Jesus answered that question, the way that he would have responded to that question, which is twofold. One, if the marriage covenant is broken, divorce is allowed, but if it, the only reason why divorce will ever happen is because of hardness of heart. We tend to hear it through our 21st century ears as sexual immorality is the reason for divorce. When you understand what Jesus was speaking into, that's not what he was specifically saying. But what he is saying is that hard-heartedness is the reason for divorce. That is actually a timeless principle. What Jesus is saying is the only reason that divorce should ever happen is because of hard-heartedness. Because we reach a point where we're not willing to turn and repent. One party 
or the other or both. So whenever there's repentance, whenever there's a pliability, a willingness to serve the other one instead of self, regardless of where the infraction is, all the way from a lack of provision, all the way to sexual immorality, there's a freedom to repent and turn, but an allowance for hard-heartedness. Another thing that's important in here that I just want to note on the way through, the word that Jesus used for sexual immorality is not the word for adultery. And so that often gets confused when people interpret this passage. They say if there's, a, if there's unfaithfulness, then that's the reason for divorce. Jesus actually used the word porneia, which was a, uh, like a junk drawer term in the Greek language. It was kind of like all kind of, uh, any kind of sexual immorality, sexual dysfunction. Uh, it was all kind of thrown into one general area. I think Jesus did that because he knew we were creative in our sin. We'd figure out a way around it if he got specific, so he just kind of kept it broad. Paul did the same thing, always kept it really broad so that we couldn't like figure out ways around it. Um, so Jesus is saying any kind of sexual immorality is a, a reason for divorce. That's the answer to Deuteronomy chapter 24. But the proper response is always to pursue repentance and forgiveness. It's no accident that this comes right after Matthew chapter 18. So what Jesus is saying is both more conservative and more radical than we see at the front end. What Jesus was not saying is there's a very narrow reason why you're allowed to get a divorce biblically. He's actually simply answering the question, but as best we can tell, he's allowing for a range of divorce options, but he's also saying to everyone who's in a married relationship, you need to stay in that marriage relationship, and you need to pursue reconciliation, repentance, forgiveness, it's not about you, it's about the original intent of God. And his original intent was that your life and your marriage would reflect the image of the creator and the glory of God. Therefore, you need to stay there. You need to dig in and, and, and dig your heels and work at it, wrestle with it. See, we read this and the disciples have this um, what feels to be an outside, outsized response, right? In verse 10, if such is the case of a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. And we read it as a response to Jesus' statement on sexual immorality. But actually, it was Jesus' statement on hard-heartedness that was shocking to them. Because what he was saying was, it, no matter what the offense is, you should be seeking repentance and forgiveness, constantly coming back to reconciliation. So they heard him say that and said, oh my goodness, like there's no way out. I, it's better for a man not to marry than it is to get into that kind of a, a, a marriage relationship. Now understand, this is in the context where men have all the rights, women have no rights. There's a bunch of men listening to what Jesus is saying and they're saying, oh man, this puts us in a really, really difficult position. It's better for us not to marry. So now let me follow through what Jesus is saying. So they say that, and then Jesus says, not everyone can receive this saying. Now, the, that, this saying is not referencing what he just said about marriage. He's referencing what the disciples just said, it, that it's better not to marry. He said, not everyone can handle that because there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. 
Anybody want my job this morning? This is really fun, isn't it? <laughs> like, are we having a great time or what? Um, Unix, um, again, um, mixed generation gathering. You're going to have to look that up if you don't know what it means, but it is an uh, inability to be able to engage sexually for, uh, anyway, you can figure it out on your own. So this is what Jesus just said. Um, not everyone can choose not to be married because there are three different kinds of people who are not married. Those who because of the way that God made them, are not married. Those who are actually eunuchs because of kings who have made them eunuchs so that they're able to interact in the king's court in a way that doesn't compromise the women in the court. Hopefully you followed all that. And those who choose as a choice of will to be eunuchs. Those who choose a, a non-sexual path, a celibate path by their choice. Now, this is tough for us to get our head around, but Jesus did not just disagree with Hillel, and he did not just disagree with Shammai. As far as we can tell historically, Jesus just disagreed with every Jewish person who ever lived. This is, as best we can see, the very first statement ever made that dignifies singleness as a way that also glorifies God. Jewish teachings of the day were, you grow up and you get married, and that's the intent of God for all of our lives. And if you didn't, you were shamed because you didn't fulfill the will of God for your life. There was no healthy theology of singleness until now. And what Jesus just said is, there are some who because of nature are eunuchs, are celibate. So that may mean that there are some who are created in a way that they don't desire a relationship, or that may mean that through things like uh, premature death of a spouse, or things like um, a, 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 a physical manifestation where some, something happened, that there's a, there's a created order to it. Or there are those who have been physically, literally made eunuchs. We won't go into detail there. And those who choose that life of celibacy. So those who are uh, capable of marriage, even maybe at some level desirous of marriage, but choosing, as Paul espoused in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, choosing the idea of marriage or of singleness as a way to be connected more deeply to God and more, uh, more fully in line with a life that glorifies God. So go back to Genesis chapter 1. Jesus is saying, male and female, he created them, not just as a one flesh union to image and reflect the glory of God, but male and female as they relate together, both sexually and non-sexually, in community and in marriage, reflect the image and the glory of God. Okay. So what Jesus says here is uh, maybe easier to get our heads around expositionally than it is applicationally. And so let me just take a couple minutes to apply before we wrap up. So Jesus is making a statement on marriage, making a statement on divorce, making a statement on purpose, making a statement on singleness. And so how do we apply it? Well, the challenge is that there are at least, this is my, my quick summary, six different kinds of people sitting here. So there are those of you who are divorced, 
righteously, according to Jesus' text. There are those who are divorced unrighteously, according to Jesus' text. There are those who are in marriages but would rather be divorced, right? There are those who are in marriages and are starry-eyed and thrilled with it, right? Then there are those who are single by choice and those who are single by experience, where they're just waiting for the right person at the right time. So six different kinds of people who are all trying to process Jesus' teaching. So how do we apply it? Well, if I try to apply it intentionally to any of those individual areas, it starts to be taken out of context. Jesus' teaching starts to get taken out of context in a really tricky way. So let me try to, from a broad surface level, hit things that hit all of us where we are. First one is this. If you go back in the book of Matthew, Jesus taught about the unforgivable sin. I don't have time to unpack that today. Um, You're going to have to go back and dig through the podcast if you want to find that. What I want to tell you today is both divorce and sexual immorality are not the unforgivable sin. So the first thing that you need to hear, because as we start to talk about a topic like this, there's immediately a sense of guilt and shame that tends to build up in some of our hearts, and that is not from the Lord. This is not the unforgivable sin, and if this is your story, if this is your story now, if this is your family's story, if this is uh, from a family of origin, people who are really close to you, this, if this hits you deeply, you need to recognize the love, grace, and forgiveness of Jesus. This is, this is not the unforgivable sin. It may mean that there are things that you need to do. There may be follow-up work. There may be intentional relational connections, and they may be difficult. But this is not the unforgivable sin. That's the first thing you need to hear. Second thing is this. Hard-heartedness does not require a marriage license. Everybody got that? Hard-heartedness does not require a marriage license. What Jesus is talking about when he talks about hard-heartedness is not something that just happens to spouses. When our hearts turn hard, we are unable to respond to the Spirit of God in any area, including our marriage. And so that means, yes, if you're married and you're wrestling right now, the first question you need to ask is, is my heart hard? Notice the way I said that, not is their heart hard, right? Um, That may be a question that can happen down the line, but the first question is, is my heart hard? And if you're not married, for whatever reason, you can read the eunuch passage on your own. I'm I'm done reading that one for today. If you're not married for whatever reason, you should also be aware as to whether your heart is hard. Are you repenting? Are you forgiving? Are you moving toward reconciliation? This is not specific to marriage. This is a key question that all of us need to ask. And the key pathway away from hard-heartedness is praying for those around us. Paul says in Romans chapter 12 that we are called to pray for our enemies, to love our enemies. And so that prayer, that prayer of blessing over people who are opposed to us, who have hurt us, the prayer of blessing over those who have caused offense is the primary way that we keep our hearts soft. And so we need to hear Jesus' teaching and recognize that hard-heartedness is the real issue. That's, That's the core that Jesus is trying to get at. 
Divorce and sexual immorality are not the unforgivable sin. Receive the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. Hard-heartedness does not require a marriage license, so we need to all be careful with our hearts. And the third thing is this. Community is vital for us at every stage of our apprenticeship with Jesus. We need one another. Do you know that you're not very good at identifying whether you have a hard heart or not? And you're really not very good, especially in the midst of conflict, identifying whether your spouse has a hard heart or not? You're not good at identifying whether your brother or sister in Christ has a hard heart or not? You need the community around you. When there's a teaching like this, there are always going to be those, whether you're here, whether you're online listening, who are saying, oh good, I'm glad he's teaching on this because I'm in a marriage and I want out of it and I just need permission. Hopefully he's going to give me the permission I need. Hopefully you didn't hear me give you any permission because that's not the intent of this conversation. We need one another. We need, are there times where that's the only option? Yes, sadly, there are times. There's been multiple times over the course of my ministry where I've said to people, divorce is the only option that's left. It's, it's heartbreaking for me when that happens. But it's always 100% of the time, as Jesus said, about hard-heartedness. And we need each other to be able to understand where that's at. We, we need to understand where our hearts are and where the, uh, the heart of the other is, and we can't do that on our own. And so Jesus is pushing us back into a connection with one another that we would journey together and help one another along. My prayer for you as you listen to this text is this, that we would be people who are responsive to the Spirit through our connection with one another. That we here, male and female, he created them to image and glorify God. So that as we connect together as a community, we come back to the primary purpose for which we're created, reflecting the glory of God to the world around us. And we need one another to do that. And so I want to invite you, um, as you process this, to process it certainly in prayer, but also in conversation. You need trusted brothers and sisters to journey with you. This may bring up all kinds of stuff that you need to deal with. Good. Deal with those things. That's healthy and necessary. If you want to respond in prayer today, right over in this corner, we're just going to have a space for prayer. So if you want to come to be prayed for, we would love to do that, whether me or our elders and intercessors that are here, we'd love to be able to pray with you. And so uh, if you want to respond here, let me invite you to do that. But I also want to encourage you to follow this up in real conversation with trusted brothers and sisters as you journey together. It's such a vital topic, one that we don't hit often enough. And so as difficult as it is, I'm thankful that God's brought us to Matthew chapter 19 to deal with.